For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, an overview of the political landscape heading into the midterm elections. How Tucsonans observe Juneteenth. A conversation with author Adrian Selt and Adiba Nelson with an essay about the complicated legacy of domestic violence. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Heading into the midterm elections, many state primaries have been delivering surprising and sometimes even game-changing results. Here with a look at how our state primaries are shaping up is Arizona Spotlight executive producer Peter Michaels, talking with AZPM's lead political reporter, Christopher Conover. Chris, we've got a busy election season coming up. We have the primary uh, the end of August. Uh, The major races we've got are U.S. Senate, the governor, and in southern Arizona, CD2. Just this week, there was a little uproar between uh, Matt Hines and Ann Kirkpatrick, two Democrats running in CD2. What's going on there? Three supporters of the Hines campaign have filed suit in Maricopa County to get Ann Kirkpatrick off the ballot. The reason is the address she listed on the petitions that have to be filed in order to get on the ballot lists her actual address, and that's the legal term, as here in Tucson. They say she actually lives in Phoenix in a home that she and her husband own that's close to his law office. So they say those signatures on those uh, petitions are fraudulent and therefore she shouldn't be on the ballot. The Hines campaign did not file this lawsuit. However, his campaign manager told us that they are paying for at least part of it. And how serious can this be for Kirkpatrick? And is it, um, it's a little late in the game to be raising this issue, isn't it? The timing has to do with qualifying. Candidates just qualified at the end of May to get on the ballot. So is it serious? It could be. The Kirkpatrick campaign is very strong in saying she does live here. This is a frivolous lawsuit and a waste of time. We've talked with, in recent weeks, the head of the Pima County Republican and Pima County Democratic parties about this CD2 race and the size of the primary. On the Republican side, there are four people running. On the Democratic side, there are seven people running, including Kirkpatrick and Hines. And the concern was that in a crowded primary like that, they could wound each other so much that whoever gets the eventual nomination and moves on to November comes out pretty damaged. This could do that, whether Kirkpatrick stays on the ballot or not. And some people on the street are wondering why Hines would be involved with this. He's run before, and some people say it looks a lot like sour grapes just trying to get Kirkpatrick out of the way. Okay, moving on to the Senate race, we have an opportunity to elect a new senator in in Arizona with Jeff Flake retiring. Some people are talking about the possibility of the Democrats flipping that seat with Kristen Sinema looking pretty good in, in some early polling. How does it look for her? On the Democratic side, she looks very good and very strong. She's been running for about a year now. 
She has millions in the bank and she's acting like a front runner. There is another person running in that race, Deidre Aboud. Uh, but unfortunately for her, she doesn't have the name recognition of a sitting member of Congress, which Representative Cinema is from the Phoenix area, and she certainly doesn't have the financial backing. And on the Republican side, we've got Joe Arpaio, who we thought we wouldn't be seeing again in the political arena, Kelly Ward, another conservative, and Martha McSally, who is currently in CD2 and, and looking to hopefully take the Senate seat away from Kelly Ward and or Joe Arpaio and also Kristen Cinema. How is it looking there? That is a race to the right. No surprise, Joe Arpaio, who was pardoned by President Trump, he campaigned with President Trump all over the country. Uh, and the two of them have been linked together uh, back through the birther movement uh, in the Obama administration. Kelly Ward uh, was a member of the state legislature. She challenged John McCain in a primary. She is very conservative also. And Martha McSally has moved to the right or further to the right once she got into this race for U.S. Senate. In the last few days, Kelly Ward and uh, the Democratic Party for Arizona have gotten on Representative McSally for getting rid of some videos from her official congressional website. And in those videos, she was talking about dreamers and the need to do something to help dreamers. The McSally campaign and the McSally office have not responded to that. Kelly Ward used it as a way of saying, see, she's not really a conservative, trying to solidify that conservative base that she has. And the Democrats, of course, came out and said, see, she's a flip-flopper. She'll say anything to get elected. In the governor's race, Doug Ducey is, is our current governor, and we've got a couple of people trying to take that chair away from him, both on the Republican and Democratic side. What's the picture there? This was a surprise, I think, to a lot of people that someone in the Republican Party would give a primary to the sitting incumbent governor. That's something that doesn't happen for Republicans or Democrats very often. Ken Bennett, the former Secretary of State who ran against Doug Ducey four years ago, he was also a state Senate president, managed to, in a very short amount of time, get enough signatures to get on the ballot. Ken Bennett has come out and promised that if he's governor, he will push for the repeal of Obamacare. The state got involved with Obamacare under Governor Jan Brewer, expanding Medicaid, uh, which was part of Obamacare. She said, we can't turn that money down. So Ken Bennett is, again, trying to take more of the conservative tack uh, and get to the right of Doug Ducey. On the Democratic side, you have Steve Farley, a state senator from here in southern Arizona, David Garcia, who ran for superintendent of public instruction four years ago and is a professor at ASU, and Kelly Fryer with the YWCA here in southern Arizona. In the state legislature, you were telling me yesterday about... Um I guess, kind of a result out of the Red for Ed issue. The Red for Ed movement, we all remember, was the walkout. The teachers got some of what they were asking for, but they didn't get it all. And they said they would be back in November. And we all figured that meant just at the ballot box voting. Well, it turns out it also means on the ballot. There are about 40 teachers who are running for the legislature this year, figuring 
if they can't get everything they want by filling the galleries and protesting and things like that, maybe if they get on the floor of the legislature as members, they can make some changes. That's a huge number it of is a huge teachers. Yeah. And the Democrats as a whole are trying to have Democrats in every race. You can follow all the local and state political news at news.azpm.org. Last year, Tucsonans came together to enjoy the annual Juneteenth celebration at the Dunbar Spring Cultural Center, a place that was once a segregated school for African-American students. Andrew Brown was there to ask some of the visitors to reflect on cultural changes that they've seen in their lifetimes and how much farther we still need to go. What the racism is hovering over America now. And if we don't identify it, if we don't call it what it is, it'll just hover. But if we don't expose the wound of racism, it's going to grow. So this is what this is about right now. There is a distinct slave narrative that goes throughout American history. And the fact that when slaves were freed, it didn't mean that the African-American population gained the level of respect and equality that they deserved. And I think we suffer from that to this day. We are at the Dunbar Cultural Center. We're having the 47th annual Juneteenth Festival indoors this year. <laughs> Juneteenth is actually the largest known celebration commemorating the uh, freeing of the last slaves in Galveston, Texas. 1863, January the 1st, the president announced that we are free, we being the African American. Since they didn't have a smartphone and text, they didn't get the word on time. June the 19th, 1865, Jill Granger rode into Gabberson, Texas, said, rescue guys are free. So they dropped everything they were doing and they had a big party. So hence we celebrate Juneteenth in June every year. We have all different vendors here giving out information, giving everybody little giveaways and gifts and everything, just to learn about what's going on in the community. Festival is open to everybody and we love seeing all nationalities, all races, all ages here having a good time and not worrying about all the other drama that's going on in the world. Nixon White House after that had two enemies. We have the Black Film Club here today and actually they do a film every third Saturday of the month. So it just happened to fall on Juneteenth. Now they're showing the film 13th. We have the Buffalo Soldiers inside who have a lot of artifacts, a lot of history about the Buffalo Soldiers. I just happened to be 24 years in the military. Military has been my life. I light up when you mention the military. When I see a soldier in uniform, I light up. And so when I see or hear the Buffalo soldier, I won't know who is this guy. When I begin to study him, I recognize he's me. And I'm a product of that soldier. Arizona has history about the African American. In August of 1775, I've studied uh, African American history since I was 14. And what I find interesting is the first African Americans came to Virginia about 1619. The first person of African descent came to what is now Arizona in 1538, almost 80 years prior. And some of the founding soldiers who came with Ugo O'Connor to found the city of Tucson in August 1775 were of African descent. So we have a very deep African history here in Tucson, but we don't tend to be able to celebrate as much because of the low percentage of numbers of African Americans in the community. 
And perhaps if there were more of us, that history would be as important here as it is for African-Americans in places like Virginia. I was born and raised in Alabama, where I was showered with the N-word. My last name was Boy, regardless of where I was old, how old I was. My parents were the N-word. We, we were always less than sought as a man. And so here I am in Juneteenth in Arizona. Arizona now celebrates Juneteenth as a state holiday. So I'm elated. I grew up in the Civil Rights Movement. I'm 70 years old. So, you know, I integrated every school I went to from the time I was in high school on. Uh, I suffered a lot of uh, abuses. Uh, I grew up when there were still segregated schools, segregated water fountains, segregated places to eat. So to see us make this much progress is very heartening to me. And to see other people recognize not only how much progress we've made, but how much more work we have to do and have people involved in that work of goodwill is very, very encouraging to me. In that story, we heard the voices of Frank Earl Bothwell, a veteran and Buffalo Soldier reenactor, Dr. Michael Eings, a historian, and Valerie Stanley, the Juneteenth Celebration Board President. You can see the video produced by Andrew Brown at azpm.org. The Dunbar Cultural Center is hosting the 48th Annual Tucson Juneteenth Celebration this Saturday from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. The center is located at 325 West 2nd Street. Adrienne Selt was born in Seattle, and she writes that she still misses the ocean every day. But since moving to Tucson, her literary talents have bloomed like a wild plant nourished by the Sonoran Desert. Her first novel, The Daughters, was released in 2016 to critical praise, and her second, Invitation to a Bonfire, has just been published. It tells of an unusual love triangle between three Russian immigrants in the 1920s. The central character, a ferociously intelligent young woman named Zoya, finds that winning over the man of her dreams means first cracking the code of his complex relationship with his wife. Zoya is very strong-willed, but she's looking for structure in her life. Um, she has a lot of passion, but she doesn't know innately where to direct that passion. So she's looking for, for someone to direct it for her. And she's still very young when the novel opens. We see her from childhood, but primarily from her teenage years until her early 20s, mid-20s. I don't know too much about the life of writer Vladimir Nabokov, but some of the people who have reviewed your novel have drawn parallels between his relationship with his wife and two of the other main characters in the novel, Lev, who is a, also a writer like Vladimir Nabokov, and his wife, Vera. What was your inspiration there? Why did you want to um, take something from history and put it in your fiction? Vladimir Nabokov has been one of my favorite writers for many, many years. I started reading him in college and he really his style is very precise and uh, playful and fluid and at the same time he deals with big ideas in a way that really has always appealed to me and his wife Vera in real life 
was very passionately attached to him and famously, at least famously in the literary world, was one of those wives who did everything for her husband, really submitted herself to him. She would actually stand in front of his classes when he was teaching before Lolita, which was really his breakout book, came out and made him famous. And she would actually take questions from the students, even though she wasn't the teacher. And she would only pass them back to him if she thought they were good questions. So she was running interference on everything in his life. And I didn't know until a few years ago that he had an affair, possibly many affairs. And it made me really angry because I had always viewed him as this great man of history who had actually respected and appreciated his wife and his family contributions, which isn't always the case. The anger created in me an interest in who these people were and what a possible set of motivations for their romance could be, that is Vladimir Nabokov's and his wife Vera's, and for the kind of person who might draw him away from her, which is in this case Zoya. But I will say the book is inspired by their lives, not based on. Yeah, not not in the sense of it being biographical. Correct. But if that relationship between he and his wife was based on something um, historical, was there a relationship that you were thinking of when you were designing the relationship between Lev and Zoya? Was that based on anything or maybe even based a little bit on being a fan of Vladimir Nabokov <laughs> and enjoying his books so much as a young person? I would say both. The major affair in his life was with another Russian emigre who was a dog walker or a dog groomer. And when I was conceiving of this book, I knew I wanted a character like that who had this shared history with them. But it seemed too on the nose to make her also a dog groomer, which is why I chose something a little bit more resonant and flourishing uh, with horticulture to give Zoya her own personality. And yeah, I do think that my affection for Nabokov as a young woman played into it as well, because he, again, famously in the literary world, didn't respect young women readers and his young women students all that much. They had to prove themselves to him. And so this was my opportunity to prove myself to him and also say, I kind of don't care what you think anymore. (laughs) Well, was setting the book in the 1920s, did that end up being a blessing or a curse? It was both. I had a very thorough calendar. I looked up a bunch of things like when air travel would have been um, viable. I fudged it a little bit because it seemed like Lev might also have gone on a a Zeppelin and that was a little too steampunk for this book. And at one point, Zoya eats a popsicle, and I had to make sure that popsicles existed, or if I should call them ice pops or something like that. Um, And the constraint was helpful because it gave me a springboard from which to start research in the era. Like, oh, okay, is this real now, or is this just my thinking? Um, But it was hard, and there were, throughout the editorial process, lots of little moments like that where I wasn't sure if it was realistic for one of the characters to know about something that we know about. Um, And I had to make the decision whether they would stand out or whether I could sometimes get away with them. In my estimation, Adrian, you write a lot. You write a lot of essays, a lot of short stories. You've had a previously published novel, The Daughters, that was very well received. And now we've got Invitation to a Bonfire. What has this book allowed you to do that you haven't been able to do before as a writer? I would say that each new project, and especially each new book, opens uh, a new world of connections up within the literary world. 
uh, I think this time with this novel as compared to the daughters, I've gotten more attention from national magazines and uh, from book festivals. So the thing that matters most to me with each book is what opportunities within myself it opens up in terms of new books and new ideas. And I've started trying to think about my career as a long game. Uh, and now I can look into the future and think, what what kind of book can I get away with next? <laughs> what will people be interested to see from me? And how can I either meet or subvert those expectations with what I really want to write? You can hear more of my conversation with Adrian Selt at azpm.org, including a reading from her book. Invitation to a Bonfire debuts this month from Bloomsbury Publishing. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. In this essay, she reveals the legacy that her father's violence has brought upon three generations of her family. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to this show, and her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona Public Media. The Irony of Oil. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. As I go back and forth, studying their faces silently, watching how the bow of my daughter's top lip curves up like mine, and my mother's nose rounds at the tip, also like mine, I can't help but also be struck by the irony that my daughter, who I love more than the breath in my lungs, is named after the very man I grew up hating because he, my father, tried to kill the woman that gave me life. It is a most complex web. I once heard it said that we eventually grow to hate that which we love the most. Or is it the other way around? Do we eventually grow to love that which we hate the most? The confusion is like old books waiting to be cracked open for the first time. If I crack open a book and blow the dust off the page, what new words will jump out at me? Will they be in a language I understand, with proper punctuation arranged so that the image they conjure is as pleasant as warm peach cobbler eaten after Sunday school? No, probably not. You see, I thought I had them all sorted out. The memories, the feelings, the rage, the guilt, the posthumous adoration. Yeah, I thought I was done with that. Being done with that is what gave me the chutzpah, if you will, to make my child, my flesh and bone, his namesake. I know, crazy, right? I named my kid after my mother's abuser, who coincidentally happened to be my father. Who does that? This girl. I did that. I had dealt with all of the aforementioned and come to understand my father for who he was. A man who liked to get high and one time got so high, he never came down. His brain was never the same. So how can you fault a man whose actions are not really his own, but that of one really bad, really long acid trip? You can't. You can't fault that guy. Well, at least I didn't think you could. So I named my daughter after him and told myself that she would be all the best parts of me and all the best parts of me that I got from him. And she is. And somehow, somehow through giving birth to her, I learned to love him posthumously. 
And while I am desperately grasping at anything I can to maintain that love I willfully manifested for him through his namesake, little by little, it is slipping through my fingers like oil. I can't hold it. It is impossible to hold as I imagine thoughts, memories, and ideas are beginning to be for my mother. I look at her nose as she wrinkles it, much like I do mine when I'm thinking hard. My mother does this often since her stroke two years ago. That stroke, which doctors informed us was brought on by the relentless festering of decades-old scar tissue from repeated blows to the head at the hands of my father. She works much harder now than ever before to think, to process, to remember. She forgot a key step in our Christmas cooking tradition, and I became angry when she insisted that she didn't forget, she'd simply never done it. The truth is, she'd always done it, and it was just too hard for her to remember now. But I remembered, and that memory, as they all seem to be nowadays, was available front and center, ready for me to acknowledge its existence. But really... I kind of want to forget that too. I want to forget the rage, the hatred, the confusion stacked like old books in the dusty corners of my brain. I am working much harder these days to catch that oil that can never be caught. My lips, my nose, my daughter, my mother. My father, so full of life and love in my daughter's name. My father literally a dark spot, the angel of death in my mother's brain, attempting to steal her from me yet again, but oddly, morbidly, and most of all, perhaps ironically, his namesake comforting me when he comes to take her away. How did I get here? to this strange, Dolly-esque version of reality where nothing and everything is exactly as it seems. And more importantly, how do I reconcile it? How do I remain static in a world where everything is beginning to float and augment itself for the sole purpose of what I am sure is to be some greater, deeper, wiser understanding? Is there a way? I don't even know. When it comes to this all-consuming mind melt we are affectionately calling my life these days, I'm afraid I don't know much. But I do know this. They say life and death lies in the power of the tongue. Someday soon, he will have ultimately taken my mother, this man I used to hate. But he will live on in my daughter, a child whose love from me knows no bounds. I guess that's the irony of oil. You can't really hold on to it, but somehow it manages to stay with you forever, leaving an indelible fingerprint on everything it touches. You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. The beats were by DJQ. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. 
The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.